Well, as you know, we're going to talk about the man who is known as the prince of preachers. That would be Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And I think just about by anyone's estimate, he, he really rises to the head of the list of the greatest preachers. Um, you would have to go back to the Apostle Paul to find a preacher that would rival Spurgeon. Um, I think he is easily the most beloved figure in church history. There, there are many great men that you either love him or you don't like him because they are so controversial. And we need those men um, in the life of the church, and we need to study those men. I love to study uh, John Calvin, and I love to study Jonathan Edwards and men like that. And they were very provocative. But when you come to Charles Haddon Spurgeon, if you don't like Spurgeon, you're just not saved, okay? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. I, I really wonder about where you are with the Lord if you don't love Spurgeon. So I, I want to give you a walk through the life of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and I, I have so much to say. I, I hope that I can uh, get this all in. If I can't, I'll come to your house tonight, okay, and, and, and we'll wrap this up. Um, if John Calvin was the greatest theologian God ever gave to the church, which I believe that he is, and if Jonathan Edwards was the greatest philosopher, pastor, worldview man that God ever gave to the church, and I believe that he is, if George Whitfield is the greatest evangelist, William Tyndale, the greatest Bible translator, then Charles Haddon Spurgeon surely ranks as the greatest gospel preacher that God ever gave to the church. Never has one man stood in one pulpit week after week, year after year for almost four decades and preached the gospel and saw more souls converted and saved than Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Now, the day in which Spurgeon was born was, was, a, very, was a very dark day in England. There was the invasion of liberalism from the European continent that had infiltrated the seminaries and Bible colleges, and there was an undermining of the inerrancy and the authority of the Word of God. And so it was a day in which, in order to be a part of the elite in the church, you, you would call into question the authority of Scripture. It was a day in which there was the rise of Arminianism, which is a very man-centered theology, which is really the ultimate oxymoron, because theology means the study of God, and to have a man-centered study of God is a total contradiction. But Arminianism was spreading like a plague through the churches in England. And on top of that, hyper-Calvinism was reigning in Reformed churches. Hyper-Calvinism not only believes in the doctrines of grace, but they have no burden and no passion to reach the loss for Christ. Uh, they are very passive and apathetic uh, towards missions and evangelism and say, what will be, what will be and just sit back and watch it happen. There was also the, the institutionalizing of religion in the church of 
England. And when I say the Church of England, I mean capital C, capital E, the Anglican Church. And there was the uh, prevalence of water, uh, water regeneration, baptismal regeneration. And they were touting that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. And of course, there was the Roman Catholic Church as well, which was gaining in its in its influence. Spurgeon would later call the Roman Catholic Church the devil's masterpiece. And so it was into a, a, an age like this that God had a young man born named Charles Haddon Spurgeon. God made the man for the moment and the moment for the man. And so let's talk about Spurgeon. He was born on June the 19th, 1834, which happens to be the birthday of one John MacArthur. The day, not the year. <laughs> he's getting old, but he's not that old, okay? <laughs> and, and Spurgeon uh, was born in, in, in Kelvindon, England, the Essex area, which is not far from Cambridge, and he was born um, a descendant of French Huguenot and Dutch Reformed stock. So that is, that, that is quite a bloodline of nonconformist, independent, Bible-believing people. His father was a pastor. His grandfather was a pastor. And so he, he grew up really uh, indoctrinated with the Word of God. Of his lineage, he said, I had rather be descended from one who suffered for the faith than bear the blood of all the emperors within my veins. So he was very humbly proud, if you will, of his ancestry because they had, they had been persecuted and had suffered for the gospel and found their way to England to find refuge. Uh, at age two, uh, his mother was ready to deliver his uh, her second child, and Charles was sent to live with his grandfather because they really couldn't afford to take care of both at the same time. And as he went to stay with his grandfather in nearby Stamborn, uh, he stayed there until age six. So for four years, he lived with his grandfather, and they were very formative years. His father, grandfather, had uh, Puritan works, and Charles was somewhat of a reading prodigy and devoured these Puritan works. Uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Richard Baxter's Call to the Unconverted, Joseph Eileen's Alarm to the Unconverted. So he read these soul-searching books um, that tried to expose unbelief in the heart of people who were without Christ, yet his own heart was never exposed. Uh, he said, I, I had heard the plan of salvation by the sacrifice of Jesus from my youth up, but I did not know any more about it in my innermost soul than if I had been born and bred a hottentot. Listen to this sentence. The light was there but I was blind. And so he was raised with gospel light all around him in a pastor's home and in a grandfather who was well-stocked in the Puritans. And yet God had not yet given him eyes of faith 
to see. And then on that now famous day, January the 6th, 1850, Spurgeon, age 15, was walking up the hill. I had someone recently put me in a car and drive me on this very path from Spurgeon's house to where he was headed on a Sunday morning to hear his father preach the Word of God when a snowstorm unexpectedly just blew into the, into the, sit, into the area and he had to take a left turn down Artillery Street and there was a primitive Methodist church. Spurgeon said they were known for their loud singing, so loud it would give you a headache. (laughs) And as he enters the building, there are only 10 to 12 people in the building. The snowstorm was so thick and dense that the preacher could not even get to church. So Spurgeon sits down in church. I've been in this little building, and they grabbed an older man who was probably like a deacon in the church, and he had to spontaneously stand up to preach. And as he stood up to preach, this man took for his text Isaiah 45, verse 22, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And as he began to preach, he began to explain that saving faith is a looking unto Jesus with saving trust. And he said, there's no use looking at the church because the church cannot save you. There's no use looking to the preacher because the preacher cannot save you. There's no use looking to yourself because you cannot save yourself. You must look unto Jesus. You cannot even look to the Father because you cannot come to the Father except through the Son. You must look to Jesus Christ. And then in the, because there were so few people there, the preacher then looked at Spurgeon and he said, you there, young man, who looks so miserable in his sin. And Spurgeon said, I was not used to being called out in the sermon by the preacher. You're looking to yourself. You're looking to the church. You're looking to the preacher. Look away from yourself and by faith, look to Jesus Christ. And in that moment, it was as though the, not only was the light of the gospel shining, but God gave young Spurgeon eyes to see and to understand who Jesus is and his need for Christ. And in that moment, he by faith came to Christ and was gloriously saved. It's one of the most dramatic, dramatic conversions that has ever been recounted. The, the preacher said, look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise from the dead. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm seated at the right hand of God the Father. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me and live. I trust you've looked unto Christ, that you've looked by faith away from this world and away from yourself and away from anything that you could do or anyone else could do for you 
that you have looked with myoptic vision exclusively with tunnel vision to Christ and Christ alone. It is in Christ that we have salvation. He said, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. Spurgeon said, I looked and I lived. He was soon thereafter in May of that year baptized in the Lark River. And I've actually walked through fields in the rain, in the mud, to get to this exact place where Spurgeon was baptized literally in the middle of nowhere in a tiny river in the middle of a field. He then moved to Cambridge where he joined the church and became a Sunday school teacher and began to, for the first time, have a Bible and begin to speak to others. At that point, he's 15 years old. At age 16, he preached his first sermon. A friend asked him if he would fill in for him that Sunday, and Spurgeon in a little town near Cambridge preached, and the people were unusually amazed that such a young man could preach with such skill. At age 17, he was called to be the minister of the Water Beach Baptist Church. It was a small church of some 40 people, and Spurgeon immediately accepted the call. And so he became pastor at age 17 and began preaching multiple times a week. And as he was wrestling with God's call on his life, has God called me to preach? One Sunday, one of the deacons came to him and said, there was an older woman here this morning. As she was leaving, she mentioned to me that she was converted under the preaching of your word this morning. Spurgeon's heart just jumped within him, and he asked the deacon to go with him to call on her that after Sunday afternoon. And when he walked in, the woman's face was aglow, and she gave her testimony, and Spurgeon said, that was the seal of heaven upon my call to preach, that I could not know that I had been genuinely, sovereignly called by God to preach until I saw my first convert. Spurgeon said, how my heart leaped for joy when I heard glad tidings of my first convert. How I did rejoice as one that finds great spoil one Sunday afternoon when my good deacon said to me, God has set his seal on your ministry in this place, sir. And as this teenage boy preached, the church began to grow and souls were converted And this little country church grew from 40 to over 100 in a very short period of time, and his reputation began to spread. This boy preacher, extraordinarily gifted, and through all of those years sitting under his father's preaching and reading the Puritans and and the Westminster Confession and, and all of that, and the London Confession of 1689... He he was deeply steeped in Bible and theology. Well, his reputation spread all the way to London. 
And there in London, the most famous Reformed Baptist church, really in all of England, was in need of a pastor. And they had heard about this young prodigy. And they issued an invitation to Spurgeon to come to their church, New Park Chapel, and to preach for six months in view of a call. We will vote on you after six months. And so Spurgeon accepted that invitation. And as he went, there were 200 people meeting in a building that held 1,200 people. And after three months, the building was packed. And they decided to go ahead and formalize the call. (laughs) And they issued this call to him, and he accepted. And soon, you needed even a ticket to get into church. Now, the tickets were free. just want you to know that. And they had to ask the members to come, um, to not come once a month so that all of the visitors could fit into the building. The chapel was enlarged from 1,200 to 1,500. People were sitting in the windows. They were standing along the outer walls. And soon the streets of London were jammed around the church. They had not seen anything like this since the great evangelist. George Whitfield, when he was there in the 18th century. And so they had to come to a a decision what they would do. And they made the decision they would have to move to a larger location. But it was Spurgeon's stand on the Bible in a day when liberalism was infiltrating the church Here's what Spurgeon said about the Bible. He said, the words of the Bible are God's words. The words of the eternal, the invisible, the almighty, the Jehovah of this earth. This Bible is God's Bible. And when I see it, I hear a voice springing up from it saying, I am the book of God. Read me. I am God's writing. Open my pages. For I was penned by God He is my author. It was a very controversial stand for Spurgeon to take, but he gloried in it. He said, we believe that holy men of old, though using their own language, were led by the Spirit of God to use words which were also the words of God. The divine spirit so operated upon the human spirit of the divine writer that he wrote the words of the Lord. He said, if I did not believe in the infallibility of Scripture, the absolute infallibility of it from cover to cover, I would never enter this pulpit again. He said, I hold one single sentence out of God's Word to be of more certainty and of more power than all the discoveries of all the learned men of all the ages. He said, visit other books, live in the Bible. I would rather speak five words out of this book, referring to the Bible, than 50,000 words of the philosophers. If we want revivals, we must revive our reverence for the Word of God. If we want conversions, we must put more of God's Word into our sermons." Close quote. 
So Charles Haddon Spurgeon, from the beginning, took his stand on the Word of God and would not be moved from it. His sermons began to be printed, and they were sold on the street corners of London. It was known as the Penny Pulpit, and for one penny, you could buy Spurgeon's sermon. And people everywhere were reading Spurgeon's sermons that they would buy on the street corner, that they would buy in a grocery store. Fathers would go in and purchase the penny pulpit and take it home, and this would be read for family devotions. It would be divided up into into six days, and the father would read a portion of Spurgeon, and then the family would discuss it. And by this means, Spurgeon now is discipling uh, a large circle of people. They're putting these uh, the penny pulpit onto trains and sending it throughout England and sending it throughout Scotland. And virtually overnight, the influence of of this teenage boy is is casting a shadow across the land. In fact, the first sermon that was printed and sold on the streets of London was a sermon on Malachi 3, verse 6. I am the Lord, I change not. It was a sermon on the immutability of God, that God does not change in His person, God does not change in His nature, God does not change in His mind, God does not change in His attributes, God does not change in His will, God does not change in His judgments. It was a tour de force of a sermon, so profound that when J.I. Packer wrote his really magnum opus, Knowing God, chapter 1, page 1, to begin this whole book on the attributes of God, Packer quotes from the introduction of that sermon. He could not find anything more profound than what this 19-year-old boy said about the existence and the essence of Almighty God. It was as if he was born 50 years old. And so the penny pulpit spread, and it spread the truth of the Word of God. They, because everyone is reading, he becomes quite the controversial figure. Not everyone loved what they were reading. And so Spurgeon was openly attacked by the press and by the media. There were caricatures and cartoons of him in the London Times, always picturing him as a, somewhat of a Bible buffoon, um, something a, of a dinosaur out of step with the Times. But that only stirred the curiosity even more of London citizens, and they began to come in waves to hear this young man preach. He, he met his wife there, Susanna, and they were married. She gave him twin sons and was a faithful encourager to him. But by the time he was 20, going on 21, it was obvious the church would have to move. Um, so they moved into what is known as Exeter Hall. It sat 4,000 people. There was standing room for another thousand people, and at age 22, Spurgeon is preaching to 5,000 people every 
Sunday. He said that there is not a seat in that entire Exeter Hall where someone has not been converted and come to faith in Christ. So they realized they needed to have plans to build uh, their own church. And so plans were adopted for them to build what would be the largest Protestant church in the world. The Metropolitan Tabernacle that would seat over 6,000 people and host another 1,000 people standing along the walls. And so plans were undertaken to begin building the Metropolitan Tabernacle. The Exeter Hall was so packed, they had to move to a larger auditorium. So they moved to Royal Surrey Gardens to the music hall that had three large balconies and held 12,000 people. And from the first service in 1856, this massive structure was filled to overflowing. Thousands were turned away. Every service proved to be really an evangelistic preaching of the gospel and the edifying uh, of, of God's people. And as they were there meeting in, in Music Hall, um, Spurgeon received word that there would be in that building after the church service what he referred to as worldly entertainment. There would be theater, whatever. And Spurgeon said, I will not meet in the same building with worldly entertainment on the Sabbath, on the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day. He said, my name would cease to be Spurgeon if I yielded. I neither can nor will give in in anything in which I know I am right. And in the defense of God's holy Sabbath, the cry of this day is, arise, let us go hence. And so... He gave up preaching to 12,000 people on Sunday to move back into Exeter Hall to preach to 4,000 people because he was a man of principle. Now, I'm not a strict Sabbatarian like like Spurgeon was, but he was a, a man of deep conviction and would not budge on this. And so he moved them back into Exeter Hall and continued to preach until the Metropolitan Tabernacle would be built. That same year, young men began to gather around him, drawn like the moth to the flame, to sit down close to the pulpit to hear Spurgeon preach, and there were young men who were electrified by the preaching of Spurgeon and began to gather around him, and at age 22... Spurgeon founded his own college, the pastor's college. He himself had never graduated from college. He had only taken a few classes, and that was more in agriculture. And yet, with that brilliant intellect of his and commanding mind and the passion within his soul, he founded the pastor's college, and its primary focus was not to train Christian scholars It was to train Christian preachers of the gospel. In fact, you could not be admitted into his school 
unless one, you were already preaching the gospel, two, you had already won people to Christ through your preaching, and three, you had to preach to Spurgeon in his office for him to determine, do you have the voice of a preacher? And Spurgeon said, if God wants you to fly, he'll give you wings, and if he wants you to preach, he'll give you a voice. And so it wasn't a whosoever will may come to get into his school. It was intended strictly for those who would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, came, he went in for the next years every Friday afternoon and would lecture to the students on some aspect of gospel preaching, and those lectures were taken down by a stenographer and have been printed in what is known as Lectures to My Students. Uh, many of you, no doubt, are familiar with Lectures to My Students. Those were his Friday afternoon addresses to the student body on all the various aspects of, of preaching. They were sitting at the feet of the Master. Again, this began when he was only 22 years old. The hand of God was just extraordinarily upon him. Age 23, 1857, England suffered a tragic defeat in India, a military defeat, and Queen Victoria called for a national day of humiliation. And they called upon Spurgeon to preach to the nation. And so on October the 7th, 1857, they moved into the famous Crystal Palace, which would hold 24,000 people. Spurgeon went in the day before to test the acoustics of the Crystal Palace, and he stood in the platform, on the platform in the podium and to test his voice to see if it would fill the room. He said, Behold! The Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He was confident that his voice could project and fill up such a large building as the Crystal Palace. As he stepped out, a man came up to him who looked as if he had seen a ghost. His face was white. He, he was shaking. And Spurgeon said, good man, may I help you? The man said, I was on the roof cleaning the glass here at the Crystal Palace. <laughs> and Spurgeon said, go on. <laughs> and the man said, I hesitate to say this. Go on. I heard the voice of God. <laughs> God spoke to me. Spurgeon said, what did he say? <laughs> the, the shaken man said, this is exactly what God said, behold the Lamb of God <laughs> who takes away the sin of the world. Spurgeon said, that was the voice of God. <laughs> and the man was immediately converted. Before they even move into the building to have this one-day event to preach for on this national day of, of humiliation. And Spurgeon chose for his text, Micah 6, verse 9, which says, 
Hear ye the rod, and who has appointed it? And it was a message that said this defeat of the British army is the chastening rod of God upon this nation. That we have forsaken God. That we have sinned against God. And it is the hand of God that has come down heavy upon us. And he has used the rod of the Indian nation to inflict this harm to us. Well, the people were startled to hear him preach such a message as this. But Spurgeon was so God-centered. He says, remember the words of my text. It is an appointed rod. Every deed that has been done against us has been appointed by God. The rod was ordained of God. He said, I see God in this war. The wheels of providence may revolve in, in, in mysterious manner, but I am certain that wisdom is the axle upon which they revolve so that at last it may be seen that God who ordained the rod only permitted it that greater good might follow. And so he believed so strongly in the sovereignty of God that he preached this message in rebuke of the entire nation. As they were in Exeter Hall, 1859, it proved to be an extraordinary year of revival. By this point, Spurgeon is 25 years of age. It seemed like every text that he touched from the Bible had the power of God unleashed from it. Spurgeon said he would go into his study on Saturday night not knowing which text to preach. He would outline many different passages, and he said it was almost as if every verse in the Bible was crying out to him, preach me, preach me, take me to church tomorrow, watch me save souls. And so Spurgeon, in those early years, these sermons are hotter than a furnace. Uh, As you become older, you can mellow a bit, but when you are a young preacher in your 20s, you just let it fly. And his sermon titles, Predestination and Calling, The Blood of the Everlasting Covenant. I'll never forget reading that sermon some 45 years ago when I was a student in seminary, standing in the bookstore, pulling that book down from the the shelf and, and reading that sermon. I'd never heard any preaching like that in my life. It was extraordinary. And so the final Sunday came that they were in Exeter Hall, 1859, December the 11th. The title of the message was The Minister's Farewell, Acts 20, 26 to 27, where Paul met with the elders after having been with them for three years and announced to them that he had declared the full counsel of God. And Spurgeon said, in this house, I have declared the full counsel of God. I have withheld no doctrine and no truth from you. And it was a glorious, it was a glorious uh, meeting. They had begun building the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And when they came to lay the cornerstone to begin 
to build the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which would take two years to build. It was an enormous um, building. It's no longer there. It was destroyed in World War I. And all that remains are the front steps that you walk up to go into. Now the rebuilt Metropolitan Tabernacle, as I said, it would hold 6,000 people seated, another 1,000 people standing. There was nothing in the entire world to compare to it for Protestant worship. When they laid the cornerstone, Spurgeon had five sermons preached. Total depravity, sovereign election, definite atonement, irresistible grace, the perseverance of the saints. He said, this will be the cornerstone of this church, the doctrines of sovereign grace. And while they were building the the tabernacle, Spurgeon knew he needed to have a rest. He had been preaching on an average 10 to 12 times a week. He preached not just Sunday morning and Sunday night. He preached throughout the week virtually every day. And with now the expansion of the rail railroad system in England, he's on trains crisscrossing the, the nation, preaching in, in churches, standing with young preachers who are struggling in their ministry to preach in their pulpit to help them pack the building out. I've preached in churches small country churches in England, especially on the, on the Dover East Side, and pastors will take me back into the, the lobby and show me the guest, guest register and turn back to the 1850s and show where Spurgeon had signed their guest register. And it would be uh, an, an undergirding of that church and a help just to have Spurgeon come and to preach in the pulpit. And Spurgeon realized he needed to, to take what he called a holiday. He had taken no vacations. He virtually had no day off for all these years. And so he went to the European continent for two months. And while he was there, he had to go to Geneva. And he went to Geneva where Calvin had preached. And... They insisted that though he is on holiday, you must preach in Calvin's pulpit. (laughs) And Spurgeon agreed, and they said, before you enter the pulpit, you must put on Calvin's robe. Now, Spurgeon was a nonconformist and independent He really disdained all of the outward pomp and circumstance of the Church of England and all that went with the robes, and they prevailed upon him, and they said when an ambassador comes from another country, he has a choice whether to wear the garbs of his homeland, or it's even more endearing if he will put on the garbs of that foreign land. Spurgeon said it was an irresistible appeal that they made to him. So he said, one of the grand moments of my life was putting on Calvin's Genevan robe and ascending the stairwell up into the pulpit and preaching in Calvin's pulpit. 
it was such an incredible life that he lived. Doors just opened wherever he went. He returned back to London, and in 1861, the tabernacle was officially opened. There were five sermons preached again. They were the five points of the doctrines of grace. Spurgeon was what we would call by nickname a Calvinist. By that, we mean he was a Bible believer, (laughs) that he believed the full counsel of God. And he had those five sermons preached at the opening of the Metropolitan Tabernacle that this will be the message that will be preached here as long as it is standing Spurgeon said, we believe the five great points commonly known as Calvinism. We look upon them as being five great lamps that illuminate the cross. Calvinism did not spring from Calvin. We believe that it sprang from the great founder of all truth, God. Calvin derived it from diligent study of the writings of Paul, and Paul received them from the Holy Ghost and from Jesus Christ. Close quote. And so Spurgeon, Spurgeon was Calvinistic, he was Reformed, he was a sovereignty of God man, but here's what you need to understand, he was also a soul winner. He was at heart an evangelist. He, he was always preaching the gospel, and not just preaching the gospel, but calling, summoning people to come to faith in Christ. When, when you read his sermons... One of his favorite words is come, come to Christ, come right now to Christ. There was no invitation to get up out of your seat and walk forward. If someone had it, Spurgeon would have sent them back to their pew. (laughs) But he was always calling people to Christ. He said, I take my text and make a beeline to the cross. He said, I would rather bring one sinner to Jesus Christ than unpick one all the mysteries of the divine word. I would rather be the means of saving one soul from death than be the greatest orator on earth. I would rather bring the poorest woman in the world to the feet of Jesus than I would be made Archbishop of Canterbury. I would sooner pluck one single brand from the burning than explain all the mysteries of the Bible." To win a soul from going down into the pit is a more glorious achievement than to be crowned in the arena of theological controversy and to have faithfully unveiled the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I would rather lead one soul to Christ than solve the problems of the religious sphinx or to cut the Gordian knot of apocalyptic difficulty. One of my happiest thoughts is that when I die... It shall, it shall be privileged to enter into rest in the bosom of Christ, and I know that I shall not enjoy my heaven alone. Thousands have already entered there under my preaching. Oh, what a bliss it will be to fly to heaven and have a multitude of converts before and behind me. That, that was his heartbeat. It wasn't really to win arguments, which he could, but it was to capture the souls of Christ with the golden chains of the gospel and bring them to the foot of Jesus Christ. He said, if sinners will be damned, 
at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let them be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go to hell unwarned and unprayed for. He he put his arms around the entire Bible. He believed in the sovereignty of God in salvation, but he believed in human responsibility to preach the gospel and to pray for the lost and to win them to faith in Jesus Christ. And when those two come together, it is like gas and fire. There is a mighty explosion. And for the rest of the days, until he would pass away in 1892, the tabernacle was filled every single Sunday morning, every single Sunday night, never an empty seat, many Hundreds and at times thousands turned away from entrance. And once a quarter, Spurgeon even requested that the members not attend the services so that the unconverted could find a seat. The Prime Minister, William Gladstone, attended. Florence Nightingale attended. General James Garfield, later President of the United States, attended. And throughout the week, Spurgeon preached as many as ten times around London and Scotland and Ireland and England. They told Spurgeon, you're going to kill yourself. You're preaching so much. Spurgeon said, what kills the preacher is a church that will not listen to the Word of God. That's what kills the preacher. He faced many controversies. In 1864, he preached probably his most controversial sermon. It was a frontal assault on the Church of England on baptismal regeneration and called it a false gospel that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Spurgeon was right, and the the controversy was Extraordinary because Spurgeon was so visible and because he was so so popular. Um, he founded ministries right and left, a girls' orphanage, a boys' orphanage, an almshouse for the poor, uh, mission stations around London. Uh, the members of the church served in these mission state, uh, stations He sent out street corner preachers. At his 50th birthday, a list was read of the organizations and ministries that he had founded for spreading the message of the gospel, and there were 66 organizations that that were listed. David Livingston, the great um, missionary who went into the heart of England, as you recall, when he died, the natives prepared his body to be taken um, across land to a ship. They had to mummify the body because of all of the cannibals that would try to eat Livingston's dead body. But before they sent the body on its way, the natives 
cut out the heart of Livingston and buried it there because he had buried his heart in that land to bring them the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the body finally arrived in London, safely it had passed through all the cannibal tribes, put on a ship. It was found in his possession on his body, one of Spurgeon's sermons. It's inestimable, the influence of Spurgeon's sermons around the world. They were cabled across the Atlantic to the United States. Major newspapers printed them in full. One order came in for, I think in Australia, for a, a million copies, which almost seems to be almost unbelievable but to be put in newspapers so that everyone would read Spurgeon's sermons. I have the entire 63-volume set of Spurgeon's sermons, and each volume contains 50 sermons, but that's only the tip of the iceberg because it's by year. 1855, 1856, 1857, 1858. It took me several years to be able to accumulate um, all of them, but they're like the greatest hits um, because there are 52 Sundays a year. These are only 50, and he preached morning and night, but preached so many times throughout the week that there would be no end to the number of sermons that would be in if they were all included. Um, Toward the end of his ministry in 1887, he suffered through the downgrade controversy as liberalism was beginning to infiltrate the Baptist Union, and Spurgeon stood up as a strong man and called out the liberalism, and it created a great stir and he called it a downgrade, like, a, like a, a train going up a mountain and going over the crest and now going down the backside and gaining speed on the downgrade. That's how he saw the Baptist church in England, that it was gaining speed and momentum headed towards um, liberalism, but it never stops there. It always continues to plummet into agnosticism and given enough time, even atheism. And so Spurgeon was, was branded as one who was a divider and one who could not get along with people. And he was standing for the truth in his day. And it literally all but ripped his heart out of his chest. Um, he was censored by the Baptist Union the greatest Baptist preacher in the history of the church and censored by the Baptist Union. The the motion was seconded by his own brother. It was was killing him. Um, His body was weakening. And in 1891, he preached what would be his last sermon. 
The text was 1 Samuel 30, 21 to 26. No one knew this would be his last sermon. And it was an exposition of David as a type of the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Spurgeon made the parallel comparing David and Christ as David was surrounded by 20 men, excuse me, 200 men, and they shared in the spoils of David. So Spurgeon said, if you'll come and stand with Christ, you'll share in his spoils of victory. If you'll come to the cross and stand with Christ, with Christ at the cross, then you too will share in in the victories of his kingdom. Let me read you the last paragraph of the last sermon that Spurgeon would ever preach, and it was a proclamation of Christ. It was a summoning of the lost to come to faith in Christ. And this last paragraph goes as follows. What I have to say lastly is this. How greatly I desire that you, who are not yet enlisted in the Lord's band, would come to him. Because you see what a kind and gracious Lord he is. Young men, if you could see our captain, capital C, you would be down on your knees and beg him to let you enter the ranks of those who follow him. It is heaven to serve Jesus. I am a recruiting sergeant, and I would find a few recruits here today to sign up for Christ. Every man must serve somebody. We have no choice as to that fact. Those who have no master are slaves to themselves. Depend upon it. You will either serve Satan or Christ. You will either serve self or the Savior. You will find sin, self, Satan, and the world to be hard masters if you serve them. But if you wear the uniform of Christ, you will find Him so meek and lowly of heart that you will find rest unto your souls. He is the most magnanimous of all captains. There never was His like among the choices of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, He always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it with us. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind, and tender, you will always find it in him. These 40 years and more have I served him, blessed be his name, and I had, I've had nothing but love from him. I would be glad to continue yet another 40 years in the same dear service here below if it would please Him. His service is life, peace, joy. Oh, that you would enter on it at once. God help you to enlist under the banner of Jesus Christ, even this day, this moment, now. Amen. What a way, not just to end a sermon, pleading with people, to join ranks with Jesus by faith, but to end 38 years of preaching at this church. Well, he was under such emotional and physical distress as it seemed virtually the entire Baptist world had risen up against him 
and his strong convictions to resist the, the downgrade that he withdrew to the French Riviera in southern France, to the city of Mentone. He checked into the Hotel Beau Rivage, and there he died on January 31st, 1892. Not far from the Italian border, the Prince of Preachers was only 57 years of age. A funeral service was first conducted in France, Then Spurgeon's body was taken back to London. And how would they do the funeral service? Well, there were four funeral services. Because no building was large enough to hold all who would come. There was one on Wednesday for members of the church. Another funeral service for preachers and ministers and students Yet another funeral service for Christian workers who were on the streets of London serving the Lord under His direction. And then yet another funeral service for the general public. There was then a sixth funeral. A final service was held on February 11. And in all, some 60,000 mourners pay their respects to this colossal figure. A funeral parade went from the Metropolitan Tabernacle to Norwood Cemetery. There were 100,000 people standing along the way. Flags flew at half-mast. Shops and pubs were closed. It seemed as though a member of the royal family had died. Atop his coffin was placed a Bible open to Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the the earth. I went there a couple of years ago, found my way to Norwood Cemetery, and once in, it's vast, People have been buried there for centuries. I had no map, and I walked and I walked and walked until I found Spurgeon's tomb. There is a monument above the tombstone with these words, Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. When this poor lispering, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. In his 38 years of ministry, the congregation grew from... 200 to 6,000. They had taken in some 15,000 new members, 11,000 by baptism, and in those years he addressed nearly 10 million people. 
While he was still in his 20s in 1863, his sermons had already sold 8 million copies. At the time of his death, 50 million copies of his sermons had been sold. And by the end of the 19th century, only a few years after his death, over 100 million sermons had been sold, translated into 23 languages. As of maybe a decade ago, the number was 300 million. He's easily history's most widely read preacher. He authored 135 books, edited 28 others, wrote countless tracts and articles and pamphlets. And this body of work is the largest publishing project by any one author in the history of Christianity. His 3,800 messages in print comprise the largest bound collection of one man's writing in the English language. He's an extraordinary, an extraordinary individual. People have asked me, how did you learn how to preach? And I said many different ways, but when I was in seminary, I began reading the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And he proved to me to be an extraordinary example of taking a passage of Scripture and just opening it up and pouring the whole Bible through the keyhole of that passage of Scripture. I, I would urge you to, to read all that you can read of Spurgeon. Read his morning and evening devotion. It, it's just like honey uh, dripping from his mouth, uh, the encouragement that you drive from it. If, if you need a book, a really, really good book. I've written a book on Spurgeon. <laughs> I humbly say, <laughs> and I'll tell you why it's a good book. In fact, I'll tell you why it's a great book. Because all I do is quote Spurgeon. He's the most quotable human being that ever walked the earth. And so I've one chapter is his biography, and the other chapters are what he believed about the Bible, what he believed about the doctrines of grace, what he believed about the message of salvation, what he believed about whatever, and it's just easy to read. And as Dr. MacArthur says, what he loves about these little biographies I've written is they're just so accessible. So that is our friend, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Uh, to this day, he bears the title the prince of preachers, you would do well to sit at his feet, read his sermons, read his books. I promise you, you'd be ministered to greatly. And if you don't love reading his sermons, you need to get saved, okay? <laughs> well, thank you, and I know that's for Spurgeon. So um, let me close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for raising up strong men and even strong women who in their generation leave such an influence upon the world and even after they're dead and gone continue to 
extend an impact upon so many lives. What you did in the life of Charles Spurgeon has no explanation other than you poured your grace into his life. We thank you for the champion that he was for the truth. We thank you for his faithful fidelity and ministry. And Lord, we ask that you would use men like this and even women like this who have gone before us uh, to stir our hearts, to reach forward with even greater resolve to be used by you. Father, bless these brothers and sisters in Christ who have gathered here today. I pray that you would encourage them and strengthen them as they find themselves here in the house of the Lord. We look forward to the worship service in but a short time. In Christ's name, amen.